is Justin Trippity of Sirius XM NBA Radio. And if you're not listening to me and Eddie Johnson on NBA Today, then you've got to be listening to The Bridge with John Lund. Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. Well, we're just about set for a part three of sorts in the NBA Finals. We'll get into that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 68 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. LeBron James is the best basketball player in the world, and while he's even made mention of that in the past, the king can sometimes still get a little testy if fans or even reporters think otherwise. It's time for the number one sports news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. LeBron James has been the best basketball player in the world for many years and has done just about everything in his power to justify his moniker of the Chosen One. But the King is sometimes forgetful of his greatness, even with that title branded on his skin, and still gets a little testy if challenged by fans or even reporters. Though LeBron is the undisputed best player, He's also the most hated and disliked, often criticized by the media and heckled by opposing fans, even home fans, on a day-to-day basis. He's all but exempt to be allowed to have a bad game or a poor performance in a big spot, and still receives criticisms for box scores that most players could only dream of. While the chirping and backseat drivers should stay as background noise for LBJ, criticisms sometimes make their way under his skin. Such was the case after Game 3 of the Eastern Conference Finals against the Boston Celtics, when LeBron all but disappeared in the second half and didn't score in the fourth quarter for just 11 points in a three-point buzzer-beating loss. Celtics fans surely would have been ruthless if the game was played in Boston, but it was a little surprising to hear that one fan in Cleveland decided to have some words with the man who helped deliver the city its first championship in more than 50 years last year. As the story goes from ESPN NBA reporter and personal LeBron James scribe Brian Windhorse, while heading to his post-game press conference, LeBron was accosted in the hallway by a gentleman about his 11-point performance. 
LeBron was understandably incredulous and asked the gentleman what exactly he does, to which the gentleman answered, playing Division III basketball at Hiram College and shouting out some of his stats. An answer that would be like telling Tom Brady that a criticism was warranted because you were once able to beat his team on All Madden. Yes, Hiram College, a private liberal arts college located in Ohio, founded in 1850 as the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute by members of the Disciples of Christ Church, and whose most famous alumnus was the 20th President of the United States, Mr. James A. Garfield. The Terriers' sports teams play in the North Coast Athletic Conference against the likes of Allegheny College, Denison and DePaul Universities, Kenyon College and Oberlin College, Ohio Wesleyan University, Wabash College, Wittenberg University, and of course, the College of Worcester. The men's basketball team finished with an 11-15 record, losing 90-44 in the opening round of the NCAC championship. But who are we to judge? After all, the Hiram College basketball team won the gold medal in the collegiate division of the 1904 Summer Olympics in St. Louis. Though it was the first time that basketball was actually a part of the Olympics and was included as a demonstration sport and no foreign teams participated, a gold is a gold. I'm sure the heckler remembers his playing days from 1904 quite well. LeBron's testiness from that night continued once he arrived at the post-game press conference as well as sports radio host Kenny Rhoda of WHBC found out firsthand. Kenny Rhoda, WHBC. LeBron, kind of off that defensively. What went wrong in that end of the third quarter through the end of the fourth quarter defensively? I mean, a lot of things went wrong. Um, I don't know. I can't play the, the game right back in, the, in my head right now, and I'm looking forward to seeing the film tomorrow when we get together. But... um you know, they like moved the ball like double T said, twenty-eight assists, and um, you know they kept us, kept us, you know, at bay. You know, we couldn't get stops, so we couldn't get out in transition a lot. And uh, those guys made—I mean, they made plays. They made a lot of plays. Um, they got some second-chance points. You know, they we only had two fast break points, so you know they they neutralized what we wanted to do. For you, you said you know it was just your game. Couldn't get into a rhythm tonight. Is that what it was, based on? Their defense or just not, not feeling it or what? Uh, no, it was just pretty poor. I mean, what do you want me to say? Yeah. Seems like you only answer. You only ask questions when we lose. I mean, it's, it's a weird thing with you, Kenny. Always come around when we lose, I swear. Yeah, okay. But when it comes to heckling LeBron, not much can compare to the taunt thrown the King's way after game two of the NBA Finals. Despite a triple-double of 39, 16, and 11 to help lead the Cavs to a 95-93 overtime victory in Oracle Arena, one Warriors woman still wasn't impressed. Hey, watch your mouth, woman! Watch your mouth, woman! Hey! If I remember your Facebook, phone, you better hold my Hopefully, Hey Woman will have courtside seats when the Cavaliers come back to town for this year's finals. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to practice our heckling. When we come back, we'll debut a new segment and talk to this week's guest about all things NBA playoffs. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. 
As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text in to the bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know... Who will win the NBA Finals and why? Before we get into this week's guest, I'd like to introduce a new segment that's been on the back burner for quite some time but couldn't quite come to fruition until there was enough content for it. That day is finally here, and this segment will highlight some past guests and conversations that have been had on previous installments of The Bridge. This week, we'll take a look back to around this time last year when we had the pleasure of chatting with Freddie Coleman, the host of the Freddie and Fitz show on ESPN Radio, weekdays from 11 p.m. to 2 a.m. Eastern Time. You can follow Freddie on Twitter. He's at Coleman ESPN. And also find our original discussion of episode 27 of The Bridge on my website at londonbridge.com or on The Bridge Sports Podcast on iTunes. Coming up, we'll hear Freddie chat about some anecdotes from his show and offer some opinions for where we were in last year's NBA Finals. Without further ado, it's time for the debut of Run It Back, Same Teams. All I know is, you mess with me, you got problems. That's all I know. Oh, I'll show you. I'll show you. Just make sure you got a good view. Get some popcorn. Maybe some Jujubees. A slushy. Snowcaps, perhaps. Maybe some snowcaps. I don't know. You're going to want to be comfortable today. Watch the show. Watch the show. No, in March, you brought on Ian Fitzsimmons to be your co-host, and he's been really great with you guys going back and forth. Was that transition a little difficult to get back into the swing of having a co-host, or did you guys immediately just kind of develop that chemistry just based on how much experience he also had and how big of a sports fan he is as well? It, it was immediate because you have to enjoy the person you work with, and I've never been able to understand how people have been able to work years and years with somebody and they can't stand the side of them. And I'm thinking, you can't need the money that badly or right. you can't need the success that badly, but maybe some people do. I guess that worked for them or works for them. God bless them, but that's not for me. But Ian and I have known each other close to eight years. So when that came about, I said, absolutely, because his infectiousness and his personality is terrific. He's not afraid to push any kind of envelope. He's going to be himself. He's going to have that have that sense about him that is very, very likable. And everybody has borders and everybody, they will have their detractors. He's no different than anybody else. But I knew that was going to work because of how different and similar we are as people and as men and as radio personalities. But also having that different kind of element, I knew it was going to add to the show and not take away from it. And I had not been pleasantly surprised because I guess I expected this because I knew a kind of ability and talent that Ian had before that was getting a chance to get that shine on a national platform. Is there a time in the sports year that you don't necessarily look forward to as far as the content not being as strong? Or is this a 24-7, 365, you're going to be able to find something to talk about no matter what time of the year it is? Oh, our format's like Denny's, John. We're always open. We always have the Grand Slam. We always have, we always have the moves over Miami. He's ready for <laughs> anybody to consume. There's no such thing, especially now when Sports Talk Radio continues to increase listenership. It continues to do big business. A lot of stations are changing formats to get in on the Sports Talk Radio goldmine that seems like that track is never going to run out, no matter if it's national or no matter if it's local. So there's no such thing as a down period because, as and we say this all the time on our show, somebody out there is always doing something, whether it's good or whether it's bad. But somebody either on the field or off the field, they're always doing something. So immediately, you're always going to have a base of something to talk about or a base of something to discuss that a lot of people either want to hear or want to pay attention to or want to get your insight on. So there's never been a day, and I'll never forget when Nick Saban decided to leave LSU to go to the Miami Dolphins. He did that on Christmas Day, and you would think that's the one day where nothing's going on, where there are no games going on at that time. There's nothing that a lot of people 
are going to be interested interested in us outside of the NBA, and he did that. So if something like that can happen on Christmas Day, then every day is always going to be up for grabs, especially in our format, because somebody, one way or the other, is always going to be doing something. Things happen as far as the NBA playoffs were concerned that make this question a little bit tougher to answer than it would have been a couple weeks ago between the Thunder and the Warriors battling it out to see who makes it to the finals. It looks like Cleveland is on the fast track. What do you think is going to end up happening in the next couple of, well, I shouldn't say a couple of weeks. It's going to be about a month before we finally get to the finals. But how do you think things are going to fare? Do you think we're going to have a rematch of last year? Or can this Thunder team continue to make history and end up getting to the NBA Finals? I still think we're going to see a rematch between Cleveland and the Golden State Warriors. When you think about it, technically, it's two teams getting together again. It's not a rematch because Kyrie Irving and Kevin Love were not part of the Cleveland Cavaliers last year. So, in essence, they're going to be an entirely different team right. when they get to the NBA Finals out of the East. And I still think Golden State's going to win that series of seven. Although, I like what Oklahoma City has done from a maturation standpoint that a lot of people did not think they were going to do. But I think the NBA, you're not going to be able to go wrong unless Toronto gets to the NBA Finals. And based on what we saw last night in Game 1, there's no way that's happening with the Toronto Raptors. Right. So no matter what happens, you're going to get so much star power between Cleveland with LeBron, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Love. And whether it's Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant for Oklahoma City or Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green for the Golden State Warriors, the NBA is going to have an embarrassment of riches in the NBA Finals. And believe me, if they get the same thing that they got last year, a Cleveland-Golden State Final, I can't even imagine what ratings are going to be like. We have two of the biggest stars on the planet right now. And LeBron James on one side and the two-time MVP and Steph Curry on the other side. The NBA and casual fans and hardcore fans would love to see that outside of Toronto and Oklahoma City. So I think when the finals roll around, we're still going to get that matchup that we thought and hoped that we were going to see between Golden State and Cleveland. But Oklahoma City, and I said it before the series started, they were not going to make this easy. Right. People saying Golden State was going to win five games. I said, no, 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 no. This series is going at least six, and I still think that's going to happen. And I still think it's going to be Golden State at seven, and I see Cleveland sweeping Toronto to get to the NBA Finals again. Snow caps, perhaps. Maybe some snow caps. I don't know. You're going to want to be comfortable today. Watch the show. Watch the show. The best kept secret to this NBA season is just about to be revealed and that the Golden State Warriors and Cleveland Cavaliers will meet in the NBA Finals for the third consecutive year. Here to talk more about the NBA playoffs up to this point and to preview those NBA Finals is Justin Termini. He is the host of NBA Today on NBA Radio on Sirius XM, Monday through Friday from 4 to 7 Eastern Time. Justin was on the show in March to chat about his career in sports radio and on NBA radio on Sirius XM. You can listen to all of that on my website at londonbridge.com slash termini. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-E. Or find the episode on iTunes under the Bridge Sports Podcast. In his triumphant return to the show, we'll chat about some major storylines of the NBA playoffs so far and look ahead to what we'll see once the NBA Finals roll around. Justin will be at Oracle Arena to cover those games of the finals, and you can follow all of that and the rest of what he's up to with cohort Eddie Johnson on NBA Radio on his Twitter page. He's at Termini Radio. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-E Radio. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Justin Termini. He is the host of NBA Today on NBA Radio and Sirius XM, Monday through Friday from 4 to 7 Eastern Time. Justin, thanks so much for coming back on the show. How you been? Absolutely. I mean, I don't go on many shows, John, but I had so much fun the first time around. That I had to, I had to, uh, I had to do this again. It is an honor. I don't know what I've done to deserve it, but I'm probably going to write it as long as I possibly can, especially when it gets us to talk about the NBA. Thankfully, the Celtics have at least given us one more game to look forward to in getting to the NBA Finals. But the overall playoffs, as you know, have been more of a filler in getting us to the matchup everyone has predicted. You and your prestigious co-host, Mr. Eddie Johnson, have three hours every weekday to try and figure out what's interesting, what the main storylines are in these playoffs, 
with so many blowouts, few surprises, what have been some of the main things you've tried to focus on to make this a little bit more exciting? Well, first of all, I'm not going to come on again if you call Eddie Johnson prestigious as my, as my co-host. But, uh, you know, that's exactly what we've been focused on now, John, uh, is the fact that the games haven't been very good and it's almost been a foregone conclusion. And I don't think that's something that's good for the league. I mean, you got Golden State making it to the uh, NBA Finals without losing a game, winning their games by an average of 16.3 points per game, which is the largest differential heading into the postseason. And 10 of their 12 games being decided by double digits. So they just haven't been interesting games. And, you know, a result of that is a lot of the injuries that have, that have taken place. I mean, you look at Tony Parker going down, Kawhi Leonard, the series before, it's George Hill, Yusef Nurkic. Now, even if those guys are healthy, Golden State is still going to the NBA Finals. But maybe you see a couple of closer games. And then in the Eastern Conference, it's the same thing. I don't think Cleveland is as good as Golden State. And I didn't anticipate after the regular season that they'd be cruising along here uh, into the NBA Finals. But Kyle Lowry goes down, Isaiah Thomas goes down. Those are the two best players on two of the teams that Cleveland has met. So I think that's helped them a little bit. Just hoping here for a great NBA Finals to sort of make up and cover up for the stench of the postseason. I don't think it completely wipes it away because we've been watching two months of that basketball. But if we do get seven games, it'll help out a little bit. It would definitely bring some excitement, especially this being the third time around for both teams. And so far, it's been mostly chalk, lower seeds beating higher seeds. In most cases, the better teams winning these series so far. Is that more about maybe the lack of parity with these teams or just how difficult it is overall in this sport to get an upset when the playoffs come around? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some parity with the second-tier team. So, you know, anybody could have won the San Antonio in Houston series, in my estimation. Anybody could have won the series between Washington and Boston. So I think there's parity once you get to the second-level uh, teams. It just happened to go chalk in those cases, but it very easily could have turned. Uh, I, I think the lack of the parity comes with the two teams at top with Golden State and Cleveland. And, you know, people say, well, the league's always been like that. You have the Celtics and Lakers in, in the 1980s. You had the Bulls dominate in the 1990s, the Lakers in the, in the early 2000s, etc. But, you know, you still weren't guaranteed that those teams were getting to the finals. Now, they may have won multiple championships, but there was always a question of, can they get to the NBA Finals with the Celtics? It was no guarantee in the 80s when they had to go through the Pistons, uh, you know, with Hall of Famers like Isaiah and Joe Dumars, Dennis Rodman, uh, the bad boy Pistons. Then you're going through Philadelphia with Moses Malone and Dr. J, uh, Mo Cheeks, Andrew Tony. There was no guarantee they were getting to the finals. In this case, you got to guarantee that these teams are getting to the finals, which I don't think is good for the sport. For instance, 1981, that goes seven games, Philadelphia. Uh, blows the lead there, and Boston gets to the finals, 82. Philadelphia gets to the final. It went back and forth there for a couple of years. Now you're not getting that, and I don't think that's good for the league. What's been your biggest disappointment so far, whether that's from a team or a specific player or maybe even an injury to a specific player or team? Yeah, I mean, I think it's injuries. You wanted to see, you know, Kyle Lowry stay healthy for Toronto, although I thought they would have lost anyway because Toronto rolls over in the post. And that, I guess that's another disappointment, just Toronto continually rolling over in the postseason without any fight whatsoever. Uh, for example, you got the Celtics here who, they're losing this series, but I think they've earned a lot of respect around the league for the fact that they fought hard. They haven't, they haven't, you know, just rolled over and, and acquiesced to, to LeBron and his greatness. You got Marcus Smart, who's drawing at LeBron and Tristan Thompson, Isaiah, before he gets hurt, is verbally going at it with Tyree Irving, Avery Bradley, Jake Crowder, diving in the floor. Jonas Jarebko, for crying out loud, is going at it with LeBron a little bit verbally. Whereas you had in the Toronto series, Lowry saying, you know what, we can't win because they have LeBron. And DeRozan publicly saying, I give anybody $100 that can stop. LeBron James, etc. I didn't like that type of attitude, but I, I conversely, I do love what Boston's doing. Well, they're going to lose. They don't have as much talent, but at least they're showing a little bit of uh, a little bit of spice here. Getting to the Celtics, how do you think they've been able to hang with Cleveland without having their best player in Isaiah Thomas for these last two games? So I think the ball moves a little bit better, and they're far better defensively without Isaiah on the floor as well. But that's not to say they're better without Isaiah. I think they're far better with with Isaiah Thomas on the floor. He's one of the elite scorers and playmakers in the league. Uh, and then depth. I mean, Danny Ainge has done a good job of putting together a team here where you got your web code in playing certain series, and then he's out there making big contributions in Game Three. Gerald Green will sit on the bench for weeks at a time, and then he'll come in and hit a couple of big shots as he did against Washington uh, in the latter end of that series, as he did against Chicago once they fell. Behind 
behind 2 nothing. So there's a ton of depth on this team, 1 through 12. People always say Boston, you know, might not have the best 1 through 4, but when you get 5 through 12 on the roster, they might be the best along with Utah in the NBA. And then it's just a bunch of high-character players as well. I think Angel's done a nice job of getting you guys like Crowder and, and Smart and Avery Bradley who are competitors. I don't necessarily want to throw up any red flags based on their performances without Thomas, but we did get asked this on Twitter from P Fitzgerald 68 looking a little bit ahead as far as long-term Isaiah Thomas with these Boston Celtics. He wanted to know if you think he might be capable of leading Boston to that next level, or if maybe they should think about trading him or moving some pieces around. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's going to be serious consideration here, especially with the first pick and Marcel Fultz. So Marcel Fultz uh, coming to Boston, that'll be guaranteed unless they trade it for like a Paul George or a Jimmy Buck, which I don't know if they're, they're going to do just because of the contract situation with those two guys, especially Georgie, you can walk away after the season. But you've got a ton of guards because you're going to have Fultz here, who from everything you hear is going to be a fantastic player. They say Kyrie Irving uh, with size. They say James Harden offensively is, is the level he can reach. And I think Harden's the best offensive player in the game, and then you've got Marcus Smart, you've got Avery Bradley, who I think has shown himself as an elite player here in the postseason, Kerry Rozier, so they have a ton of guards. I stay as a free agent after next year, and I just don't know if you can give $200 million to a guy who is five foot nine uh, and is going to be 29 years of age, so I could very easily see Boston moving on from Isaiah Thomas, and I would almost recommend that if $200 million is going to be his asking price. Hitting on the Cavaliers and most recently their win in game four, it was another game that we saw them get off to a slower start, but Kyrie Irving was able to go off for really a legendary third quarter. How important is he to this team? He often gets overshadowed by LeBron, whether in a good or bad light, whatever people feel like talking about with him. But in big moments, we even saw it last year, and more importantly in the NBA Finals, Kyrie is a type of player that he said has that, quote, Mamba mentality of Kobe Bryant, where he has no problem taking over the game, and we got to see that in Game 4 as well. Yeah, I mean, you saw it last year with the Game 7 shot right around the time LeBron had that chase-down block where he hit the biggest shot of the game to Kyrie Irving. That still was the defining moment. He had Game 5 where he went off for 41 points last year, the, the game that Draymond Green was suspended for and really started the comeback, uh, the first win of three consecutive to win the NBA Finals. So he comes up big in, in big class. He had the 57 points against San Antonio in the regular season a couple of years ago as well. I mean, he's a premier talent now. Defensively, he's a sit. He doesn't do anything defensively, and that's a major problem but he saved LeBron's butt here in this game uh in this game four last night because if he doesn't go out there and perform as he did they lose and LeBron gets criticized again LeBron had 15 points in the fourth quarter 15 of his 34 that was after the game in my estimation was already decided the pressure was off during the pressure moments it was Kyrie Irving last night uh that, that really you know did the damage is what happened to LeBron in Game 3 and Game 4 just maybe a blip that happens to most players? We saw him not score in the fourth quarter, only have 11 points in that Game 3 loss, and have those quick early four falls in the first half in Game 4. And as you mentioned, did end up with a pretty great stat line if you were to look at it, but it did seem like it wasn't necessarily in the biggest moments of that game. Is there anything we could equate that to? Because once in a while we do see this from LeBron in some of the biggest games he plays. Yeah, I think it's just a bad game. And, you know, oftentimes you get guys like Love and, and Kyrie, when they get off and LeBron tries to get them involved, uh, he puts his game on the back burner, and it just seemed like in Game 3 specifically, he couldn't find the uh, the switch to get it back on. You know, it, it rarely happens, but it does. And it, here's what I'll say. He's lucky that it happened against Boston, uh, not only because it's a smaller stage, but they're also guaranteed to win the series no matter how badly he plays. If he does that against Golden State, I mean, they'll get their butt. They stand no chance. Plus, it'll be on the national stage in the NBA Finals where everybody is watching, and the pressure will be even more intense. Uh, I, I don't foresee him playing like this again throughout the course of the playoffs two bad games back to back but if he does uh you know he's, he's really going to get hammered because you see the you know the sharks come out he has one bad game and everybody wants to compare it to jordan so uh you know it was a bad game the other day for those that don't like lebron and i'm not the biggest fan it was something you got to pounce on but i don't see it happening again Right, and there was some talks from analysts and others that maybe he was fatigued in Game 3 huh. and Game 4. Do you see any truth to that? 
I mean, the guy's played, what, 12 games in 40 days? You know, if, if he's, he, there's no way he's fatigued. If he's fatigued, you just retire. I mean, uh, he's played 12 games in 40 days. You can't have the excuses. He's going out there in blowouts earlier in the postseason, playing like 42, 45 minutes when he doesn't need to be on the floor. So if rest is that much of an issue, then he should be, you know, when they're blowing the team out by 20 points, which they've done a couple of times in this postseason, take him out of the game, rest of men. I mean, this should be the most well-rested he's been at any point during the entirety of his career based on the fact that they're coming off two consecutive sweeps. I mean, what if they were playing a tight series or two? What would he do then? I mean, you know, he would, he would be sworn five points and he'd really be tired if he had to play long series. Their short series fatigue is, is not an excuse I want to hear about with LeBron. He did have pretty great performances before game three in the previous two series. And there was a lot of chatter that he was playing his best basketball of his career coming into game three. And we could even still see that as he continues to play. Do you think that's the case as far as this being his best basketball? I think that came more in the final three games of the NBA finals last year. Maybe it's sort of to just wait and see what he's able to do against a valid opponent once they get to Golden State. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is the fact that they're not playing much competition. But, yeah, if you want to say from the final three games last year against Golden State through what he's done here this year so far, I think it's been the best stretch of basketball uh, in his career as far as, you know, scoring. You know, the whole uh, the whole package is concerned, the scoring, the efficiency, the points, the, the rebounding, the, the fact that they've essentially just lost one game out of, what, like their last 14 or 15 postseason games. You can make the argument that this is his best stretch. That's why when he plays a bad game, I think, hear about the fatigue because he's playing the best basketball right now, which is amazing, even as a guy who's not you know, the biggest fan of LeBron's approach uh, with you know, the, you know some of the things he says off the court that drives you nuts, some of the drama. I mean, this is the best that, that he has played, in my estimation, and it's amazing 14 years in at the age of 32 that he's still capable of doing it. Heading over to the West without Leonard, without Parker, even the great Greg Popovich was in trouble to try and take down these Golden State Warriors. But I wanted to hit on one of the main players who was a key in the series in Manu Ginobili, who may or may not retire at the end of this season. If that was his last game, have you thought about maybe where he lies in the NBA echelon of legacy? Some people have said he might be worthy of the Hall of Fame. He might be worthy of the Hall of Very Good. We know he was a key cog in four NBA championships, along with Tim Duncan and Tony Parker, and was a Lakers killer for many, many years, as I can attest to. What do you think Manu has met to this Spurs team for as long as he's been able to do it? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is selfless because guys of his talent in this day and age just don't come off the bench, and he was willing to do that. And certainly he's a Hall of Famer. I mean, the four NBA championships, as you alluded to, along with Parker and, and Tim Duncan, the winningest big three in NBA history, not the best big three in NBA history, but the winningest big three in NBA history over the course of the regular season. Uh, and then you think about where he sort of, you know, and then you combine what he did over in, uh, in Europe in the Italian League and then Argentina when he won the gold for them in 2004 down in Athens. All that contributes to him being a Hall of Famer. And as far as his legacy, where he fits along with the six men uh, in the history of the sport, I mean, there's only two that you definitively say he can't touch, and that's John Havlicek, who's the best six man of all time, and Kevin McHale, who would be number two on that list. But right behind them, I mean, he's in the argument with everybody else you want to throw into that discussion, whether it's Billy Cunningham, whether it's Jamal Crawford, uh, you know, Ricky Pierce, uh, the, the microwave, Vinny Johnson. Uh, he's right in that conversation conversation is maybe the third best six man in the history of the sport and my calls how can I get him Eddie Johnson he's right in that conversation his mama I'm sure he's going to love getting mentioned in the same sentence so I'm glad you gave him a shout out yeah I mean it's it's I'm assuming he's not if he does listen to this and he hears that I'm going to pay the price for it I'm hoping he does not hear that maybe you can go back and edit that out because I don't like to publicly uh, give Eddie any uh, any credit absolutely we can definitely censor that Getting with the Golden State Warriors, to this point, just looking at their three-year resume up until now, we've got three straight finals, winning 73 games, Curry winning two MVPs, the 12-0 run that they've done now. We know what they've done and then went on to sign Kevin Durant coming into this season to even add to that en route to winning 200-plus games in the past three years. Is there something up to this point, before they even start playing the NBA Finals and go for that second title, that sticks out to you as what's been most impressive thus far? 
Well, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's the, it's the regular season success uh, with the 67 wins uh, a couple of years ago. They get 67 here again this year, the 73 last year, and just the professionalism, especially when you look at the rest of the league where they're not taking the regular season seriously. They're relaxing. They're, they're resting games. The fact that Golden State goes out there and handles themselves like professionals each and every single day, to me, that that's very commendable. And again, if, if they sew this thing up two championships over the course of three years, uh, the most wins regular season-wise over the course of three years, you got the MVP twice in a three-year span in Steph Curry. You had another MVP uh, in Kevin Durant. You've got uh, three of the top ten shooters in the history of the league all on the same team, in my estimation, in Durant, Curry, and, and Clay. You've got Draymond Green, who could potentially be the defensive player of the year this season uh, and is one of the more well-rounded players in the in the sport right now. Uh, it's just a dominant, you know, the, the postseason run right now that they're on, if they're able to finish this out sweep or take care of the NBA Finals in, in five or six games and, and continue to outscore their opponents at this historic rate, they're going to have to be in the conversation for the greatest team of all time. Now, I wouldn't say they're the greatest team of all time. I still don't throw them, in my estimation, into the same category as the 86 Celtics or the 87 Lakers, the 67 Sixers, maybe the Bulls there in 1996, but they at least have to be in that discussion. And if anybody wants to say they are, I can't call them an idiot. I can disagree, but I can't call them an idiot. When Kevin Durant came to town, we figured there would be part of the trio of Steph Curry, Klay Thompson, and Draymond Green that would have to take a lesser role than they were used to, and it seemed like that's really been with what was once deemed the Splash Brothers. Klay Thompson has a lesser role now than he once did, which earlier in the postseason he seemed to struggle with a little bit. He wasn't quite shooting very well, maybe wasn't getting involved enough. That seems to be coming around a little bit. Is that something that could be a problem come these NBA Finals, or is it something that they're really figuring out and starting to click on all cylinders with it? Yeah, I mean, Clay, I think, averaged like 11 points during this past season in this series against San Antonio. He's only shooting 38% here in the postseason, down from somewhere around 47 during the regular season. And in the regular season, you didn't really see his role affected too much because he was averaging about 22 points per game, which is on pace with what he's been doing the last couple of years. But here in the postseason overall, he's just averaging 14 points per game. I don't think it'll be a, a, a problem here in the NBA Finals, uh, but I do think in the offseason they could face some difficulties as far as, you know, Clay Thompson's just too good to be uh, having his role diminished as much as it's been in the postseason, as much as Clay enjoys winning and as mature as he is, which I think it helps that his father, Michael, played for great Lakers teams back in the 1980s. You know, he's going to want a bigger role. He's not going to settle for being, uh, as we were talking about yesterday, you know, a Ron Harper. He's too good to be a Ron Harper on those Chicago Bulls teams, and he's too young. I mean, he's an elite scorer. He's an elite defensive player. So uh, it'll be interesting to see the dynamics in the offseason. If they win, I think it's a little bit more difficult to deal with because then he's got you know you know is it worth the sacrifice if they lose Clay Thompson's not going to be a happy camper the fact they lost and he uh, and he gave up so much of his role we should never assume but it does look like we're headed to Golden State Cleveland in part three of the NBA finals soon enough though they will take far too long to get here once the series wraps up in Cleveland with the Boston Celtics Looking at the NBA Finals against the Cavaliers and Warriors, in a typical radio type of question, what do you think the biggest keys are for both these teams, specifically with the Cavaliers, since it looks like there's no one that's going to be able to stop these Golden State Warriors? At least we haven't seen that yet. Yeah, I, I think it's defense because in the regular season you saw that that Cleveland's defense stunk. It was in the second, uh, it was in the, it was the bottom third of the league. And then since the All Star break, they were like you know twenty fifth, twenty sixth in the NBA. There were just a couple of the teams in the NBA that were worse for them. And they really improved on that throughout the start of the postseason. These last two games against Boston, the defense has been brutal, and you know they're giving up a lot of open shots. Boston's just not hitting them. But Boston right now, who's their best shooter? I mean, is it, is it Avery Bradley's the best offensive player? Is it, you know, is it Al Horford? Uh, you know, so they're not great offensively, and they're still doing a good job here against this Cleveland defense. When you then move to Kevin Durant, Klay Thompson, Steph Curry, Draymond Green, if they play the same type of defense against Golden State, Golden State will win all these games by double digits. So defensively, Cleveland needs to be a lot better in the NBA Finals, or else we're going to be looking at Golden State getting the easy win. 
taking out the two most important players for each team in Durant and Curry and LeBron and Kyrie, who do you think really has to step up to maybe get their team one or two wins in this series? Should those two players sort of be taken away as the games go on? Yeah, so let's say it's outside of the obvious with Clay and, and Draymond. Let's say it's Andre Iguodala just because defensively what he does against LeBron, and we saw that two years ago when they won, and, and Iguodala's had some knee problems here in the postseason. So let's say it's Iguodala on that side. Uh, and then on the other side uh, for, for Cleveland, uh, you know, Kevin Love's been playing great right now, so let's even take him out of the mix and, and throw him in with Kyrie and, and LeBron and assume that he continues to play well like this. How about a guy like Kyle Korver who – uh, can change a series if he's hot from beyond the arc. And, you know, he goes a couple of games where he hits between, you know, four or six threes or three and five threes. Uh, yeah, he could really make a difference with his outside shot. So I'll say those two guys, Corver for Cleveland uh, and then Iguodala for, uh, for Golden State. When the dust settles, which team do you think has the most to lose should they lose? Meaning we know if LeBron were to drop this series, everyone will say that he now has a losing record in the NBA Finals. Where on the other side, everyone will look to the Warriors and say, you brought in Kevin Durant and you couldn't even win with him. They'll crucify Kevin Durant and they'll crucify the Warriors as a whole. Who do you think will have more of a hard time should they lose these NBA Finals? Oh, I think it's clearly Golden State. I mean, Cleveland did everything they needed to do last year. They beat seventy-three win team uh, in the postseason. They overcame a three-one deficit. So I think they're in the clear even if they lose. I mean, unless LeBron gives you more games like he did in Game Three against Boston, if he does that, I mean, it's going to take a lot of heat. But I think it's Golden State with Durant going there to team up. Curry coming off a couple of bad uh, NBA Finals. There, there's clearly more pressure on Golden State in the NBA Finals than there is Cleveland, especially because Golden State ran in, you know, with a 12 and 0 record undefeated. So I think there's a lot more pressure and a lot more to lose uh, for Golden State. And if if Durant doesn't perform in Golden, even if Durant does perform, if Golden State loses, Durant is going to have a long, long summer. What is your prediction for the NBA Finals? Uh, the way that, you know, I thought it'd be maybe a six or seven game series based off how Cleveland was playing before these last two games. If Cleveland plays like they have the, against Boston these last two games, I think it could be rather quick looking at something like five or six games. But right now, I'll go Golden State in six games. They, they win on the road uh, in Cleveland in game six, just like they did two years ago. The last one for you. What has been the biggest beef or disagreement you've had with your co-host, Mr. Eddie Johnson, so far in these NBA playoffs? In the NBA playoffs, wow. Uh, I mean, there's there's a different one every single day uh, <laughs> with Eddie and myself. Let me see if I can I can rack my brain over what the biggest one uh, would be. I, I mean, I would say this. You know, and this is where it goes with Eddie and I. Uh, it was actually what's worse, a hurricane or a tornado. Uh, I thought that, you know, they're equally the same or that the tornado is worse. So I thought at, at the very best, they're the same. Uh, but, you know, the tornado could be worse. He thinks a hurricane is not, you know, just the same, but also worse than a tornado. So we had a huge argument over that that, that spilled over throughout the Sirius XM uh, newsroom. It, it was just, uh, it was a very heated debate. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's the type of arguments we get into, even at this point in the, in the season where there's important game taking place. See, that's what you got to love about the show. You've got NBA discussions, NBA arguments, NBA thoughts, and then you also get into real life. So what's there not to love when you guys get together? I know you're covering the NBA finals. Is there a particular city that you're looking most forward to heading to when you've got to go to Cleveland and then head up to California to cover Golden State? Yeah, well, Eddie and I are covering only the Golden State, only the Western Conference stuff. Uh, the, another program on our station is going to go to Cleveland. Uh, and Eddie and I went to Cleveland last year, the year before we went to Golden State. Uh, and we definitely had more fun in Cleveland uh, just because it's uh, it's right on top of the arena, the, the different bars, and we went to a place called Harry Buffalo's. The atmosphere was absolutely fantastic. So I'm going to miss the fact we're not going to Cleveland. I would say the, the atmosphere outside the arena and surrounding the arena is better in Cleveland. In Golden State, inside the arena, the atmosphere is better. So either way, you, you give up something. But two fantastic sports cities. Aside from the weekly show, is there a time that people can tune in to NBA radio, whether that's pregame, postgame? When can they find you during these NBA finals, especially when you're covering the games in Golden State? 
Yeah, well, I mean, it's going to be the same time, 4 to 7 Eastern time. Sometimes we do a little extra programming. We'll run a little bit late uh, or we'll, you know, be on on the weekends for a special show. I think we'll be doing that uh, between games 1 and 2 uh, out in Golden State for the NBA Finals. And then, of course, they can follow me on Twitter at Termini Radio, T-E-R-M-I-N-E Radio. Uh, you know, so when I'm not on the air, I'm still commenting or I'm still fighting, usually with Eddie Johnson uh, on Twitter. So, you know, I'm everywhere right now with the uh, NBA players. I can't wait for the summer when I can take a little vacation. Right. Never a dull moment until the season ends. Justin, thanks so much for coming back onto the show. I told you when we first spoke, I had to get you on here to get some of your insight on the actual NBA, aside from what you're doing amazingly in your career. And I'm glad that I did. Great hearing your thoughts on the NBA playoffs so far and breaking down some of the excitement that maybe we've seen. Hopefully that comes in the NBA finals and gives you guys a lot of things to talk about as we move forward. But thanks again for your time. I appreciate it and enjoy the games up there when you're covering them in the finals as well. Sounds good. We'll do it again soon. All right, buddy. We'll close out the show with another edition of five minutes in the film room with Kyle Cicilloni. Don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers for this, so you'll still be able to see these films and have a better idea of what will be in store if you do so. This week, Kyle will break down Alien Covenant, a sequel to the 2012 film Prometheus and the second installment in the Alien prequel series that will follow a crew of a ship who land on an uncharted planet and make a terrifying discovery. You can find Kyle on Twitter and on Periscope. He's at Kyle Cicilloni, K-Y-L-E-C-I-C-I-L-I-O-N-I. Without further ado, here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Kyle Cicilloni. Thanks, John. So I recently saw a sci-fi film where a group of space travelers discover a distress beacon on a nearby unknown planet. They go down to discover it, People touch things on the planet they shouldn't be touching. They get back on the ship, not knowing a deadly alien was brought back with them as well. The alien then proceeds to terrorize the crew members. But enough about Alien, guys. I'm talking about the new Alien movie, Alien Covenant, directed by Ridley Scott, who is of 79 years of age, which is pretty incredible considering the sheer scope of this movie. And more importantly, this movie is not written by Damon Lindelof. That's the most important thing here when it comes to credits to this film. I will say I do like The Leftovers. The show is really good, the show on HBO that Damon Lindelof writes for. It's pretty fantastic, but Prometheus, not so much. So my history with Prometheus is a little complicated, I would say. I don't think Prometheus was a terrible movie. I do applaud it for its ambition. I just don't think that a lot of the themes it went for were handled particularly well. Now, with this movie, this is basically Prometheus 2, which is good and bad. The entire movie was made to justify things that happened in Prometheus, but it also learns its lessons from Prometheus. So the problems I had with Prometheus are some of the grander ideas, things with where we came from, who created us, why we're here, that kind of thing. And I think the best parts of this movie, Alien Covenant, are the things that it answers from Prometheus. I think those are the strongest parts of this film, which is funny because those are the parts of the film that I felt were lacking from Prometheus. So this film does make Prometheus a better film. I don't think it makes it a great film. I think I still enjoy this film more than that. There are less dumb characters in this movie than there are in Prometheus, although I'm coming to the realization that I think dumb characters are just a classic part of horror movies. I mean, I still don't understand how characters can still feel the need to touch things on an undiscovered, unknown, foreign planet. It still doesn't make sense to me, but oh well. The first act of this movie has a lot of setup, a lot of character development, takes its time, which is cool. I kind of like that. That's where the the first Alien movie kind of succeeds and, and why it's such a classic sci-fi film. There is a large cast in this movie. I think that's one of its faults. There's maybe 12 or so of the crew members or 14 or whatever. I think they say all their names. I could never be sure because you could only really remember about four of them. And those are the four people we kind of get the most time spent with. Danny McBride is one of those few members. He plays the pilot named Tennessee, which is a nice little callback to the first alien with Dallas. 
And it's about the closest thing we get to comic relief. It's a very kind of gloomy movie. It's very macabre. There's not a lot of light at the end of the tunnel, but there are a couple little Danny McBride moments, which you can certainly tell were improvised or whatever, but, you know, he's awesome. So Billy Crudup is also a character in this movie who plays kind of the stand-in captain kind of in over his head. And his character is just straight up half-assed. They introduce these ideologies of faith for his character, but it never leads to anything. It's never really brought up again. And the only reason it's kind of brought up in the first place is kind of catalyst to make the crew stop at this planet for the reason. I'm not going to get into more details than that. We also have Catherine Waterston, who plays the Ripley character, basically, in this film. She's not really a wannabe Ripley, which is good. She has her own things going on, and she doesn't take center stage. Center stage actually goes to Michael Fassbender, coincidentally enough. Uh, I'm not going to say why or anything. This is spoiler-free, but he takes over a lot of the second act, and the second act is probably the best part of the film. He gives an absolutely outstanding performance and proves why he's truly one of the finest actors working in Hollywood today. Third act is garbage. Not going to get any more of that. It's just pretty bad. I mean, the movie's okay. It could have handled some of the suspenseful moments a bit better. Everything's very rushed. There's no time to let anything kind of sink in or develop or build suspense. It's pretty gory. That's due to the R rating. Not that it's overdone, but it's cool to see some blood once in a while with, with, these, with these alien movies, whereas Prometheus kind of didn't. So it felt a little bit more at home. And it's an absolutely beautiful movie. I, I will say... Ridley Scott doesn't make a bad-looking film. The landscapes are absolutely stunning. It's shot in Australia and New Zealand, and apparently that's good enough to look like a foreign planet. That's fine with me. It was absolutely breathtaking. I think that this movie kind of suffers from a lot of the problems that modern sci-fi thrillers kind of suffer from, but it also is adding enough new things into the Alien franchise that makes it interesting and worthwhile to see. But I also feel like that's the reason why it's not worth it in the first place. Why do we need these prequels to an alien? This would have been a fine, standalone sci-fi movie with all of the alien elements taken out. There's an interesting movie there somewhere. It's just slapped on this alien franchise that's unnecessary, but studios have to make money, so that's pretty much it. Thanks for joining me for 5 Minutes in the Film Room. I'm Kyle Cicilloni. Sexy. Check! Uh, check please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on the TuneIn app on Wednesdays by searching for Sports Radio America. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll get back into the NBA playoffs, dive into some Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.